0: Good morning, my name is Justin and I'm one of the leaders here at Carson Valley Bible Church and it is an absolute pleasure and a joy of mine to get to preach uh, to us again this morning. So this morning we're looking specifically at the ascension of Christ and our text this morning uh, is going to be in the book of Acts uh, chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. And I apologize, I don't have a page number for you, in that um, Bible's before you. If you also flip to Hebrews, uh, chapters 1 and chapters 8, maybe uh, stick a finger in there, uh, because we will um, be going through some portions of that this morning to help uh, just explain uh, to us through the Word of God uh, what's at hand in the ascension of Christ. So for the past few weeks, we've been walking through the Easter season with a specific focus on the theme of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Luke began by showing us the Scriptures, this king and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. All the while being hailed by the words of people in the streets shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Then on Good Friday, we saw the king give up his own life upon the cross. A despised and rejected man as we saw in Isaiah 53. Our suffering servant, one acquainted with grief and sorrow. One who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This king, his head adorned with a crown of thorns, hanging on a Roman cross with nails through his hands and through his feet. There we see this king give up his last breath, willingly to the Father's will. And this is to the what the scriptures have foretold since the beginning. His last words cried out on that cross before that last breath was to in the Greek, or it is finished, or in better words, Paid in full. See, a transaction was made that day. A great exchange. Our sins laid upon the sinless and the righteousness of Christ given to the unrighteous. You see, the debts of sinners like you and I who have trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ was paid for finally and fully that day on the cross by Christ, our King. And on the third day we saw on Easter that the King resurrects from the dead. And in this resurrection, there's a propitiation made for God's people where the wrath of God upon sinful humanity was propitiated by this work of Christ where this wrath of His was appeased for us. And that brings us to the ascension of Christ in context, we're looking at 40 days post-resurrection. or after Christ resurrecting from the dead, spent 40 days with His disciples, moving around the territory of Israel, preaching His gospel, and encouraging His followers. We see on that ascension day that heaven was not brought down. The fullness of God's kingdom was not fully realized yet. Perhaps it seems like bad news to us realizing the effects we still experience today. And if this was a a melodramatic, something we would watch on TV or in a show or in a play, it would seem like this is almost bad news. We suffer from Tao growing impatient that the Savior has not returned yet. I think you and I, if we look at the news in the world around us, we look at the sickness that just afflicts us, we look at the sin in this world, within ourselves, within others, This world around us, we grow impatient, we grow doubtful sometimes, crying out to Jesus, come and come quick. And sometimes it's just not quick enough for us. And today we look at that ascension of Christ, the day that Jesus left this world. We see the disciples, the ones whose last ears to hear him, the last human eyes to behold him, watching him taken up on a cloud of glory. And again, to go back to this melodramatic theme, it seems like this is bad news, that the Savior of the world, this one who they've been following for years, is leaving them behind. And again, to the untrained eye and the ear, it seems as if Christ abandons His people, it abandons abandons His promise of His rule and reign as this good King, There were so many in Israel at the time looking at the scriptures wrongly that are hoping for that fulfillment of the kingdom in Christ. But it didn't happen the way that they planned on. I think sometimes we can look at the way God works through our our lives and sometimes things don't go according to our own will but we must trust that God's will is absolutely perfect. There's a good king Again, there he goes, out of sight. Sometimes it just seems hopeless. But if we know the truths of the Scriptures, we know that we're not hopeless. See, the first thing we see after the ascension of Christ is Pentecost. We see this promised spirit that Moses was looking forward to. One that not only just the particular prophets of Israel we were able to receive but something that would be poured out upon all of the believers of God's people and from there we see this power of this pouring out of the spirit through really instead of calling it the the acts of the apostles we can call it the preaching of the gospels see this pouring out of the spirit at pentecost is what we see giving this power to the apostles to go to all corners of the nations and to preach the good news of jesus christ And it begins with Peter's great sermon heralding the gospel, preaching Christ crucified, calling his hearers to repentance and faith and to be baptized. But why? Why did they have hope? Why did they have power to preach this gospel? Again, their Savior just left them after promising Him to be with them always. And don't we feel that sometimes too? As if through the circumstances that we face, that maybe God is not with us. See, this morning I hope that um, and pray that what we see with Christ ruling and reigning from the kingdom of heaven, from His throne of heaven. Sorry, is that this kingdom that we long for is a kingdom that is realized fully here and now? I'm sorry, not not fully. That is to be waited, but it is here in the now. And we have hope with Christ ruling and reigning from his throne. And this hope that they had, we see with uh, Luke's gospel in chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. We see the joy that these disciples had, watching their Savior ascend on the cloud of glory. And there it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. See, when Christ left this world in his ascension, the followers of Christ were not dismayed, they had joy and the first thing they did was to bless him to worship him and to preach his name it seems like this good news that the king is no longer with his people but it is christ is with his people and if you look at john 16:7 it explicitly says that it is to your advantage that i go away and these are the words of christ talking to his disciples That it was good news that he would go to heaven and not stay there with them in their presence. And again, I want to open up this morning why that is good news for us here and now over 2,000 years later. And we'll see that although he is not face to face with us, he is still ever present with his people. See, he did not ascend to his throne to leave us in this battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil on our own. But he is with us. Before we get to our text at hand this morning, I'd like to just pray. As I pray for us to hear the good news that Jesus Christ is the King ruling and reigning from heaven, that you'd pray for for me to just be true to God's Word, to give us exactly what we need to hear from Him this morning, and to herald that good news that He has for us. So church, pray with me. Father God, we just come before you this morning just as mere beggars. There's nothing in our hands that we can bring to you to appease your wrath. But we fully trust that Christ did that for us on the cross. We know that you're not a God just ruling from heaven, just giving us best wishes to walk through this life on our own you are with us every single step of the way and even though we may not be able to see you with our eyes we can see you God with our hearts and we can hear you through the scriptures and we can attest to their truthfulness that you care about us that you provide for us and that maybe everything that ails us may not be taken away in our timing but we know in your timing it will so, God, as we walk through the scriptures this morning, may we just realize that your will is perfect, that your will is good, and that true doxology or theology or sorry doxology or worship of you and love of you stems from this theology. This knowing more about you. So God teaches this morning to know you better and to love you more. May Christ be exalted as our King. And I pray it in His name this morning. Amen. So, if you would, please turn to that first chapter in Acts. Where it says, in verse 6 So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we had sent these things. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them with robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from heaven, or from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Church, that is God's true and all-sufficient word. Thanks, God. Thanks be to God and Now today I'm going to do something a little bit different than we usually do. We usually do what we call as expository preaching. Where we just pick a book in the Bible and we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so we don't miss a single thing that God has for us in there. But sometimes when we go through a series like this, we're looking and focusing on the kingship of Christ, brings us to these topical sermons. I'll be honest with you, it's not quite my forte. I love just walking through the scriptures. But what I hope uh, you guys see this morning is something that I saw with my own heart. As I'm walking through these scriptures, looking at the ascension of Christ, something that we really don't think of very often, just how pertinent it is to our daily lives. How much we need to know how Christ works in our lives and how he cares for us, how he cares for his church. And to do this, this morning I'm actually going to be walking through what is called the Heidelberg Catechism. If you look back to the beginning of this month, we had a members meeting. And at that members meeting, we show that we are now implementing what is called the 1689 London Baptist Confession. as basically our doctrinal statement. These are the words of men of old who have basically taken God's word and made guardrails for us doctrinal guardrails so that we would stay true uh, to the Word of God and what it teaches. And for us, at the Carson Valley Bible Church, we believe that the 1689 does just that. But not only would we consider the 1689 London Baptist Confession orthodox, there are plenty of orthodox confessions and creeds and catechisms that we could say are absolutely, without a doubt, orthodox. They disagree, particularly on the issue of baptism in most of them. But when they teach us about God and things like the ascension and the personal work of Jesus Christ, they are absolutely true in what they teach us. So this morning that brings us to the Heidelberg Catechism. And the way the Heidelberg Catechism works is it goes through 52 Lord Days, where every Sunday a new question is given to the church. And then it's answered, and each question opens up these truths of the Bible about God, about church, about the nature of man, about Christ. This morning we're at Lord's Day 18. Lord's Day 18, and this is question 49. And the reason I got stuck on this text is because I was walking through it. It doesn't just look at the ascension as just merely a historical event, although it absolutely did happen in history. But it lays it out this way, that not only did Christ ascend to heaven, but there are benefits that he gives to us by leaving this earth and going to his throne. If you could, Taylor, put that question up there, please. And this question that we're walking through, or really the answers to this question this morning, it begins like this What benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? And it answers this way in a a threefold manner. First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Second, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he is the head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And third, that he sends a spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God and not things on the earth. What we see here is three answers to this question. And I believe that these three answers describe something that we call the threefold offices of Christ. And although our particular emphasis this morning and throughout the last few weeks have been on the kingship of Christ, you see, Christ doesn't just operate on His throne in heaven just as king. He operates as prophet, priest, and king. And if you're a note-taker, this morning I'll make things easy for you. This is a three-point sermon. Now, it's not in that particular order But those are the things that we'll be walking through this morning. Of of how does Christ, sitting on his throne, rule over everything as king? How does he take care of creation as priest? And how does he reveal himself to all the universe as prophet? See, though the doctrine of Christ's ascension speaks literally to Christ ascending or being taken up, See, the main point of the ascension, I believe, is not necessarily the means by which he ascended, but it's the destination to where he went to. See, Christ ascends to his throne, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over this mediatory kingdom that the Father has given to him. And until all things are made full, he still rules and reigns. He is the mediator of the covenant of grace. And in this question and answer, the catechism lays out, again, this threefold office. Not explicitly mentioning the names of each office, but I believe it instead speaks of both their functions and their benefits. And through faith alone, we are beneficiaries of what Christ does as our advocate in heaven, ruling and reigning in this threefold office. And we will see here soon how these benefits are applied to us. And the first point, Christ as priest. And again, to answer that question of what are the benefits of Christ's ascension, this first answer, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. As our high priest, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of God making intercession for his people. In 1 John 2.1, he says this, Little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Church uh, repentance is something that continues throughout our lives until glorified, until we're glorified at death. And though we continue to sin and we see that sin just is ever present in this world still, although we're made new creations, we know that we're not made sinless. But we need to know that when sin comes, we're not to revert back to this idea of works righteousness, hoping that maybe we can offer penance and woo God to bring us back into his favor. But no, we confess our sin to God. We turn from it and we turn back to our Lord, knowing that all of our sins have been paid for at the cross. See, church, repentance is just not a one-time thing for the Christian. Repentance isn't something that we as Christians call others who don't believe in Christ to do. No, repentance, as I mentioned last week, looking at Psalm 74, repentance is something that Martin Luther would call the posture of the Christian. Repentance happens this way. It happens in this two-part manner. You see, repentance isn't abstinence. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm going to not do this sin and I'll be good, but no repentance is this manner where we turn from sin, and we turn to something positive. We turn from sin, and we turn to Christ, again, realizing that whatever that sin may be, He has already forgiven us for it. And we'll see in a moment how He actively shows us that through His intercession for us. We know that our justification is dependent on this intercession of Christ. Our justification, meaning how are we made right with God in a court of law? If we were to look at it that way, how are we to be made right in His eyes? And it is only through this intercession of Christ. If we compare Judas and Peter from the Gospels, we see that Judas and Peter both sinned greatly in betraying Christ. They both denied Him. And Jesus and his deity already knew and foretold of this moment of both of their denials, the Last Supper. But here's the difference, and here's the focus on that intercession. And Peter says, or "Sorry, Jesus says to Peter this, and not to Judas, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers you see peter's faith and his salvation was dependent on this intercession of christ and the same truth applies to us satan would sift us like wheat if he can get a hold of us but through the intercession of christ he makes sure that our faith does not fail and to those that believe that salvation can somehow be lost, this is an absolute impossibility because our salvation does not rest upon our own strength, our own ability to hold on to that faith or hold on to that salvation as if it's something to be grasped. But no, it rests on Christ Himself, His inaccessory work. And He will not fail at that. See, it was foreshadowed by the Old Testament priests, who went into the tabernacle to a seed, intercede for the people of Israel, so Christ is the true tabernacle in heaven interceding for us. And if you flip to Hebrews chapter 8, I believe verses 1 through 13 really explains this even better, than much better than my own words. And it says this. Now the point and what we are saying is this. there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one as neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In church, for this to occur, Christ had to be made like us. And if you move one chapter over to Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, it says this, Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become, what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are suffering and being tempted as well. And church, that is good news for us. That we have an advocate in heaven who is just like us, who experienced the same things that we experience in life. And one thing that comes to my mind, thinking about the suffering of Christ, and really in comparison to the suffering that we have, there is no suffering that we could ever humanly experience on this earth that even compares to the suffering that Christ bore for us on the cross. And if there is any truth that I want us to believe in this morning, it is that. And if you're suffering today, Christ suffered more for you when he suffered on the cross. And that man, Jesus Christ, is sitting on the throne of heaven, caring and interceding for you and for I. Stephen Charnock, who's a Puritan from the 17th century. And he said this about Christ's intercession. And it's completed in two functions. In his priesthood, it's considered to function in oblation, as we saw in Hebrews uh, earlier. That oblation, that giving of a gift, in that priestly manner, and through intercession. And this intercession, and this giving of the gift, what Christ is doing here in heaven is the giving of himself mediating between God and man and therefore all the benefits of Christ's office of the priest are given to his heirs through faith in him these benefits are manifested in his providence and also seen in the sanctification of his people by his Holy Spirit to make us more like him You see, church, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. But he continues to apply this once and for all sacrifice to his elect, the chosen of God, those who have been known since the foundation of the world. This intercession continues ceaselessly. And can we even comprehend that? It seems like we grow tired after an hour of work on Monday morning. Like Christ, as He rules and reigns in heaven, not a single corner of the universe escapes His sovereign rule. And He cares for us every moment of every day, and that's for every single one of those who places their trust in Him. That should just boggle our minds. I have no better words just to see how big Christ is. And how good he is in his intercession as priest. And for the second point, Christ as king. And the next benefit that we find in the ascension of Christ is the catechism says, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he As the head will also take us, his members, up to himself. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king to rule over them. See, what's been happening over Israel for all this time is they've had a king. God himself was their king. But you see, they were looking to all the nations around them. And what they wanted was they wanted a human king. As if God wasn't good enough for them. They desired exactly what the pagans had. And we see that God does grant Israel a king. Saul is soon appointed king over Israel. And the evidence of man's fallen condition quickly shows itself in Saul's thoughts and in his deeds. This king was corrupted by pride and idolatry, leading his relationship with the almighty to deteriorate. God eventually rejects Saul, removes his very spirit from him. And if we fast forward to King David, David displays his sin as well, but despite his sin, he is a man after God's own heart, as we see in the scriptures. God raised him up to be king, and as Paul claims in Acts 13, 22, he says we, when he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. And Paul then continues in verse 23 saying, From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought Israel the Savior, Jesus. So church, this kingship of Christ is one that was promised long ago. What we saw is just merely a type and shadow of the Christ, the king to come, It was just human beings who were absolutely failures in their roles as kings. See, Israel always waited for that perfect king. The truly righteous one who would rule and reign over them. And we see that promise fulfilled in Christ. See, this office was earned through his passive and his active obedience to the Father's will. Every single bit of it. We see at the ascension is the kingdom of God being inaugurated with Christ seated at the throne by way of conquest. He's made his enemies his footstool at the cross. What I want to focus on right now for just a second is there's this idea out there that is if Christ still has enemies out there to defeat. We talk about spiritual warfare and a true enemy that does exist. He does tempt us. He does try to confuse us, to deceive us. But much of the time in our distress, we fail to realize that this victory has already been won at the cross, that Christ already rules and reigns on heaven victorious over every single one of his enemies. So church, in that next spiritual battle, realize it's already been won by Christ. He's made every single one of his enemies his footstool. And yet the last thing for him to conquer and defeat is death, which will be finally and fully realized when he comes again to make all things new. And as I said earlier, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes known that the sacrifices himself at the cross was acceptable by god the father as a ransom for many but also what happened at that cross again is his defeat of his enemies this triumph over evil this victory over sin and again his ascension is a victorious one christ the god man truly god truly man he is the rightful heir to god's throne that is good news for us church To know, as Paul states in Romans 8, 17, that although he is ruling and reigning in heaven, we are his brethren through faith. And everything that he has earned is ours, as heirs. And Paul says this, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs, and if heirs of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What I'd like to point out now is because it's pertinent to see how this works, and this goes for all three offices of the person and work of Christ, that prophet, priest, and king, is to mention what theologians call the hypostatic union, or this union between the humanity of Christ and his deity. This is important for us to understand. If we look back at the virgin birth, we see why it was necessary that Christ was not born from man. Because all born under Adam are born in sin, but Christ wasn't. He was born sinless and he stayed sinless. He lived and died sinless. But emptied himself of his glory. And what we see at the ascension is that glory coming back Christ, who laid down that glory to become like us. What we see through moving from this triumphal entry in Jerusalem before his death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, is we see this moving from humiliation to exaltation. Sometimes we want to really just bring down God to our level. As if we had a buddy Jesus, and we failed to see him as the ascended one. We failed to see that his humiliation meant him taking on our flesh. And much of the time we think too highly of ourselves, and it leads us to not think so highly of our exalted Christ. These two natures of Christ, both his humanity and his deity, are two natures that cannot be separated. This Christ, the God-man, lived a perfect life, being obedient to every jot and tittle of God's law. And as a sinless man, he laid down his life, the lamb without blemish. So when we look to his throne, he is seated again as the God-man. In his humanity, he is our perfect representative, as we went over earlier absolutely like us in every way. And again, through this passive and active obedience to the Father, what was rewarded to Him was this throne. And what is rewarded to us as heirs is, in a sense, we're already seated with Him. And Christ and His deity contains all the power to rule over every bit of creation, giving judgment to His enemies and granting forgiveness to His elect. if you would, while you're in Hebrews, please flip over to chapter 1, verse 1. I know there's a lot of Hebrews, but I, I, I absolutely love this book. And if you haven't spent much time in Hebrews... It's a really good book to just get a grasp on all the things that God promises and fulfills as shown in the scriptures of old. We see Hebrews really explain those things from the Old Testament. And they explain to us why they're all pertinent to the here and now for us. But in verse 1 of chapter 1, it begins like this. What we're seeing is we're seeing the supremacy of Christ. And it says, long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is also the head of our church. Paul in Ephesians 1 Verse 22, he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So church, Jesus Christ, the King, is our flesh, ruling and reigning in heaven now through our union with him by faith. We are his bride. And through that union, By faith alone, we have access to all of the blessedness that the Father has to give. He is a benevolent and righteous ruler, one who, again, is the agent of creation, the sustainer of all things. From his throne, he cares for and protects his bride, the church. And he says himself that he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And church, if that does not give you hope, I do not know what will. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. And what good news is it that his kingdom shall have no end. For point three, we see Christ as prophet. The last benefit in the ascension of Christ that the catechism lays out starts like this in its answer. It says, that he sends his spirit as an earnest. And by earnest, that's just, using that language, it's merely just a, a down payment or a taste of what's to come. See, when we hear the gospel, when we believe it, or what the scriptures tell us is born again, we're made new. Our eyes that were only fixated on the world, our desires only on the sin and unrighteousness, something changes. Our hearts are quickened. Our hearts of stone are taken out and replaced with the heart of flesh. One that desires righteousness, desires to follow God, desires to turn from sin and turn to Him in repentance. And we're sealed with this Holy Spirit this Holy Spirit that we're given, unlike Saul, it cannot be taken away. Paul in Ephesians 1.11 says this. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And what he's saying is the spirit that dwells in all of believers, again, is just a taste to come. And I know there's those times so we just call to Christ and say, come now. I can't take it any longer. But he keeps us here. Remember, he numbers our days. And every day that we have here left on earth is a gift. And that gift has given us to do what? To do exactly what the apostles did when they saw him go up on the cloud. They went and preached the gospel. They went and shared with others the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has to offer to those who trust in him by faith. And this Christ sits at the right hand of God. It helps us to focus on things in heaven and not things on the earth. And as prophet, Jesus reveals to us through his word and by his spirit the will of God for our salvation. In John 14, 6, Jesus mentions that he is the truth. And as prophet, all of the knowledge of God is revealed to us by him. Remember in Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God. I remember one day having a Jehovah's Witness come to my door and wanted to share with me the good news of the Gospel. The first place he wanted to go after knowing that I was a Protestant was to say that nobody has ever seen God. So therefore we can't see Jesus as God. What a fascinating thing because we know that the Scriptures tell us absolutely different. Again, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And if we've seen God, or sorry, seen Christ, then we've seen God. And if we've heard from Christ, we've heard from God. Remember, He is the God-man. And Jesus continues in verse 6 and 7 of John 14. And He says, No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. He is the image of the invisible God. I'm going to say this again because I just I love and enjoy it so much. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. In church, through believing in this personal work of Jesus Christ, we have seen God. And by his spirit and his office of prophet, he continues to reveal himself to humanity. So in a sense, we could say this is continued revelation, but I want you to note that when I say continued revelation, I don't mean that new scriptures are being added to the can of the 66 books that we have in our Bibles. What I mean by continued revelation is means that through Christ's intercessory work on the throne of heaven, He is continuously revealing to Himself those who hear the Gospel. And this is why it's so important to just not take the Gospel and keep it to ourselves. And although we are a Reformed church, we believe in what we call Calvinism and God's choosing of His elect, and His passing over of the reprobate. We believe in the doctrines of grace. But you see what the hyper-Calvinists do in living this life by a way of fate. That if God is sovereign over salvation, then He'll just call everybody to Himself that He wills. He'll do everything that it's necessary, and not a single person will be lost. You see, that's not the means by which God shares his gospel and calls people to himself, is it? We see in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul saying that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So if the good news is the power of people unto salvation, it means it must hit people's ears. So if we could take, again, anything away from the sermon this morning, anything from the ascension of Christ, anything from the power that He gives us from the throne in heaven, realize we have all the power necessary for ministry. That the Holy Spirit just isn't given to some churches to believe it' just a few people who may be cut out to share in the gospel and preaching and teaching and exhorting. No, it's given to every single one of us. That spirit that seals us is the same spirit that powers every single one of us to evangelize. From our homes with our children, to our workplaces, to our families, to the barbecues that we have after church on Sunday. To the inside of a church to the outside of the church there is nothing we can do for this world other than fulfill the great commission and sharing the gospel and there is nothing that gives us power to do so except for realizing that Christ gives us all the power necessary for that from his throne in heaven ruling and reigning as the prophet as the one who through us reveals himself church that is good news we're not stuck on relying on our own words to hopefully convince people that the gospel is true That Christ is real, that what he did for it actually is given to us through faith and faith alone. No, that power comes from him through that gospel. And that's why I want to just end on this note of just holding on to the sufficiency of Scripture. That the church is somehow lost over the years, where many would believe, yeah, it's true. It's the infallible and inerrant word of God. Sure, it does not err and cannot err because it is the word of God. But we've lost the understanding that it is absolutely sufficient for us. And again, to look back at those disciples who left that mountain with joy. Sure, they watched their beloved Savior leave. But they knew that he was just the firstborn of many. He was going to prepare a place for him or for them. And he's going there to prepare a place for us. And until that time when he returns in the same fashion as he left, he promises that the work that he began in us he will see to completion. He has sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us. To sanctify us. To convict us of sin. To helping us from our turning from and turning again to Christ. And the Spirit that dwells in us, this is why we can say without a shadow of a doubt that He is present with us at all times. See, although Christ is bodily present in heaven, he was spiritually present here on earth through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his believers. This is why when we come together the first Sunday of every month and we have communion we know that Christ is there not in some skewed form as Catholics or Lutherans believe that somehow Christ is bodily present but no it's not truly Christ's body it's not truly his blood but he is ever present because he dwells inside each and every one of us and how do we know this? How do we know that all of this is true? How do we know that this is the place to find hope? Because Christ is true. Because the scriptures promise that it's true. In church, we don't need to go through whatever we're going through thinking that Christ is not with us. I know sometimes it may seem like Maybe if we just got to look at Him. and Maybe like Thomas, got to put our hands on Him. No, no, we have something greater than that. Sometimes we wish He would just speak audibly to us. But we have something that speaks much louder than that, and that is the Scriptures before us. So as we leave here this morning, may we just trust in the sufficiency of Him You know, that whatever's ailing us, wherever we're at in life, everything that we need is found there. Every bit of hope is found there. And it's through the scriptures how Christ reveals himself to us, and it's what we use to reveal him to others. So church, again, although we can't see him or hear him audibly, we've heard from his word. And that is sufficient for us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for revealing yourself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that the Spirit that dwells in us is in a testament to the truth that you show us in the Scriptures that all the good work that you began in us will be made complete. May we look to the golden chain of salvation that you lay out in Romans, that for those who are called are justified, those who are justified are sanctified, and those who are sanctified are glorified. May we realize this is spoken in the present tense. And may we cling to the assurance of those words. And may we believe in the sufficiency of your scriptures. To know that everything that they lay out about Christ, even though he may not be with us, we have even more than what we deserve. So God, we just thank you for him. We thank you for his ascension. We thank you that he's a good king. And if there's anything that you can show us this morning... May you show us the glory of yourself through him. And may we see just a, a big Jesus, a king Jesus. And just as Isaiah got to peer into the throne room of heaven with the cherubim singing out, Holy, holy, holy. In this room where the robe of God is flowing almost forever. May we get that picture in our minds of Christ. He is the one seated on the throne. He is the one that the cherubim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. God, may you just help us to know him, to trust in him evermore this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.